Today's guest is Helene Wabe, ND, MCR, and she is the Director of Research at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at Oregon Health and Science University. She completed her undergraduate degree at the University of California, Berkeley, in anthropology and pre-medicine. She obtained her clinical doctorate at the National University of Natural Medicine. She obtained her Master of Clinical Research from Oregon Health and Science University, where she has been on faculty in the Department of Neurology since 2006. She also completed two postdoctoral research fellowships. She is author of The Science of Channeling, Why You Should Trust Your Intuition and Embrace the Force That Connects Us All. She has some fascinating experience with channeling and a very scientific approach as well to afterlife evidence, channeling, and research on non-local consciousness. Welcome to What the Fuck Just Happened. I'm your host, Liz Enton. If you listen to the intro, you know my story. If not, here's a brief summary. I'm a sciencey skeptic, and when my dad died, I took a shot in the dark and decided to investigate if there was any possible evidence of an afterlife. I assumed that was as realistic as Santa Claus, but I was desperate. However, I was so blown away by what I discovered that I wrote a book and launched this podcast. In this podcast, I will be talking to some fairly normal people about some really weird shit. I speak with everyone from psychic mediums and afterlife researchers to ordinary people who've had some inexplicable experiences. So come, listen, there's no need to draw any final conclusions. Keep an open mind and wonder, what the fuck just happened? Hi everyone, today I'm speaking with Dr. Helene Wabe, and welcome. Hello, everybody. My name is Helene Wabe. I'm the Director of Research at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and I'm so happy to be here with you today talking about this topic. And so my first question is, how did you get involved with IONS in the first place? So I actually had never heard of IONS, and I, through a circuitous route, ended up being a meditation researcher at Oregon Health and Science University. I had originally gotten my naturopathic physician degree and was working with patients and got really drawn to get back into research, specifically meditation research. So I was there, did a couple of postdoctoral research fellowships, and was very focused on looking at mindfulness meditation and how it works. And a friend of mine who knew I was doing meditation research, he said, you have to go to IONS for this meditation work group they're having. I said, oh, this sounds 
you know, fabulous. Tell me more. So they were hosting a work group with expert meditation researchers on the future of meditation because they realized that, you know, even though there was this wonderful surge of meditation research in the West, people were just looking at it in a very prescribed way. It was like, okay, what's going on in the brain? What's going on in the body? And they didn't often get into the spiritual aspects or the more esoteric aspects of meditation. It really was devoid of that kind of spiritual underpinning. So this work group spent a few days together talking about those issues and how we could support them. We wrote a joint paper that was published in uh, PLOS One talking about the different areas of meditation research that we could strengthen in some way. So while I was there doing this incredible work, I was just blown away by the courage that IONS had to ask these more esoteric research questions. And I really wanted to get involved with that myself. So I asked the, the CEO at the time if they you know, were hiring or had space on their science team. And over the course of about a year, Uh, I ended up joining the team as a consultant, then a scientist, and now here I am finding myself as the director of research. What are some of the studies that are currently being conducted by IONS that you're most excited about? IONS has two major research programs that we call part of our strategic pillars, if you will. The first one is called the IONS Discovery Lab. And this is basically looking at transformative practices and how it affects people. And it's based on the our guiding premise, which is that we are all interconnected and that embodying that awareness allows us to access information and energy from beyond our conventional notions of time and space, which in turn can profoundly amplify well-being, transformation, and innovation. So that's a mouthful, right? But you can kind of split it up into three concepts. Interconnectedness, extended human capacities, and well-being. So the IONS Discovery Lab wants to understand what is the relationship between those three concepts, what practices boost them, you know, like is it meditation, is it uh, nature-based hikes in the woods, is it quilting, who knows? It can be any transformative practice, and we look at how those three measures change before and after. And then the third question is, what is it about me as an individual that makes it so that I might do better with a meditation retreat versus a, you know, polka retreat or whatever? I'm just making up silly examples. So, but it really is about the individual characteristics. So what is the relationship? What practices shift it the most? And what are the individual relationships? So that's the IONS Discovery Lab. And What's so cool about the acronym for that is IDEAL, I-D-L. What's so cool about the IONS Discovery Lab is any of your listeners who are or know of workshop leaders can enroll with IDEAL and we have their participants do uh, surveys before and after any type of workshop that they have. And then we will at no cost give them a report. 
showing them how their participants have shifted. So to us, this is really an important piece of it because it is a service to the community that allows us to actually evaluate all of these incredible practices by a third party. So uh, if any of you in the audience are excited by this, please reach out to us at researchatnoetic.org because we'd love to partner with you on this IONS Discovery Lab collaboration. So that's one major area of focus that the science team's working on. Another area is uh, what we call IONS X, which is our what we call our moonshot, because it's really about practical applications of consciousness affecting the physical world. So my intention, how does my intention influence the world around us? So we have a number of different studies that look at this. But if you tease apart this kind of idea of consciousness affecting the physical world, you have the consciousness or me. I'm the operator, right? I'm the one who's directing my intention towards something. And that something we call a target. So that target can be photons. It could be a plasma ball. It could be cells in a Petri dish. It could be chocolate. It could be tea. We could really direct our intention towards anything. And then the relationship between the operator and the target can be moderated by whether we're close to each other, whether it's a full moon, whether we're in North America versus South America, who knows what actually influences that relationship. So we're really wanting to understand all those various pieces. And we know from previous studies that we've done and others have done that there is growing evidence that our intention in fact does affect the physical world. So that's really exciting. I know I, those are our kind of main strategic pillar programs, but we also have the channeling, IONS channeling research program, which is really where my specialty is. And I imagine of interest to your audience on this podcast. And that really is about our, our innate human capacity. At least I'm proposing that it's innate, that everybody has this ability to access their inner wisdom, this what we call the noetic, um, this knowingness that's beyond our five senses, that all of us can do that. And the way that we do it is really unique to us. So when I first came to IONS, I had a very rich personal background in this, and I was so excited to be able to bring my research training to this topic and developed a research program that's looking at important questions like, what do we already know? You know, what does channeling look like? Who can do it? Can we actually verify the information? Is the content useful? And how does it work? So we have many, many different studies that are getting into those pieces. And I'll just clarify, you know, some people, when they hear the word channeling, they're like, oh, that's, you know, this very one specific thing. But the way I think of channeling is really as a broad umbrella term that includes a wide variety of experiences from intuitive gut hunches to precognitive dreams to the more extreme things like mental mediumship or trans channeling, which is what people often think of when they hear that word trans channeling. 
So I'll stop there because I know I've been talking a lot. I'd love to hear your thoughts on all of that. No, it's all fascinating. I just want to back up and ask you one question before we delve really into channeling. You mentioned how our consciousness, which can influence matter and studies on tea and chocolate. What would that even mean, a study on tea and chocolate? How would that be influenced? So our chief scientist, Dean Radin, did a series of studies that were really so cool because he had people direct positive intention to chocolate. And the participants, you know, it was so easy to recruit people to participate in that study. Of course, everyone wanted to get a bar of chocolate and taste chocolate. So basically, he had two batches of chocolate, one that had positive intention for better mood imbued into it, and one that didn't. And it was all blinded, meaning that, you know, the people did the intention setting, but then, you know, they were marked batch A and batch B, and then they got scrambled up and no one knew who was getting which batch, right? So the participants got sent a chocolate bar and then they would take recordings about their mood over time. And we found that the mood of the people who had the intentioned chocolate bars was improved more than the people with the other chocolate bars. So that was an incredible study. And uh, Dean did another study with tea, same thing with the tea. And I can't remember the exact outcome for the tea, but again, there was improvement in the tea that had intention associated with it. And there was an interesting relationship to people's belief about the intention, that the effect was even stronger if the people believed that intention could affect the tea. So you can go to our website. We have a web page with all of our publications and you can type in search terms, etc., so that you can uh, read the details of those yourself if you're interested in, in the nitty gritty of the science. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are. I'm gonna ask you a quick question about the belief. Now, did it also correlate that those who had strong belief but didn't get the chocolate or tea that got the control group without the intention, did they not report as strong mood changes? In this moment, I'm not remembering the exact results, so I don't want to misspeak, but um, the belief was an important piece. And so we'd have to go look at that paper in more detail to figure that out. But I will also add to that. Belief is one of the strongest predictors for having channeling experiences spontaneously and for doing better in the lab on laboratory tasks. So it's really fascinating because just believing in channeling and believing that you can do it is actually one of the strongest ways to uh, manifest that in your life. And you, channeling's been part of your life for your whole life. I'd love to hear a little bit about how channeling played a part in your childhood. Yeah, so I was about 10 years old when my mother took me to my grandparents' house, to what they called meetings. And I walked into my grandparents' house. I was a little nervous. My mom didn't really share a whole lot about what we were getting into. 
And there were probably about 40 people there all sitting around in a circle. And my uncle, who I knew, you know, really well, was speaking in a very, very different voice, very different mannerisms, and was like giving messages to people in the circle. And so what I learned later was that, you know, this whole idea of trance channeling, which the channeler believes that they act as a vehicle for a non-physical being to speak through them. So like envision a spirit, you know, using my uncle's voice box or brain to actually move his mouth, to actually have words come out of his mouth. And this is done in a consensual way, meaning that there's a relationship and he said, yes, I agree to this. I give permission. So it's not like some sort of scary possession exorcist situation or anything like that. So that was what I know now is a kind of a spiritualist meeting and that these went on throughout my upbringing and it really colored my worldview um, in terms of who I kind of the true nature of reality, of who I am, of how I see the world. And it was really quite profound and influencing, uh, I think, even my career. I mean, just the fact that I ended up with IONS, I think, is very influenced by that as well. And so within your family, was there a time you saw something that could be described as highly evidential in terms of channeling? That's a great question. I I did, and I can't get into all the examples, and many of them are, are quite personal. But I will share one that was pretty amazing to me. So both my grandparents on my mother's side are, are have passed, and my grandfather passed before my grandmother. And he had been passed for a few years. And my grandmother was not doing well. And, and it was pretty clear that she was going to be passing soon. And, you know, we had a, a really heartfelt conversation about that her passing was imminent and how is she doing and is she fearful, etc. And I was by myself with her in her hospital room. And she married my grandfather when she was quite young. And it was a bit of an arranged marriage, if you will. And they were married for decades. So when we were in the hospital room, she said to me, she said, you know, I'm not afraid of dying. She said, but I don't want to be married. I loved your grandfather, but I don't want to be married to him for eternity. That is not going to be very fun. So she was anxious about passing because she felt that she was going to be married to him for eternity. Anyway, she did pass. And I didn't share that conversation with anybody because it just felt like, I don't know if my family would really want to hear that, you know, about uh, grandma and grandpa. So later, my mother, who was also a trans channeler, we believed that she was channeling my grandmother. And she said to me, you know, we're not actually still married. He does his thing and I do my thing. And it's, I was afraid for nothing. And so 
you know, my mom did not know about that conversation. True, she could have telepathically picked that from my mind, but I wasn't thinking about it at all. And so to me, that was a an highly evidential experience, that private conversation with my grandmother and then the affirmation of it through this trans-channeling. That is pretty amazing. And even <laughs> if, I mean, I just got chills. And you know, when even when people say, well, they could have been reading my mind, that still shows that consciousness is communicating non-locally, which gives hope and evidence that consciousness can be stored non-locally, which I think adds to survival hypothesis. Yes, exactly. I know people say, oh, that's just telepathy. It's like, okay, well, that's pretty remarkable in and of itself. Right, right. And it's, you know, people who say, the most extreme of skeptics will say, well, telepathy doesn't exist. So then once you have multiple aspects exist that your you know, aspects of science say can't, that that already contradicts and gives more hope towards an afterlife. Yeah. Um, now, you yourself have channeled, correct? I want to hear about some of your experiences. Yes. Yeah, so as a child, I was really quite sensitive and I... You know, if I walked into a room, I could, I, it felt like I could feel other people's emotions more than just like seeing, oh, if they're angry or whatever, like I could feel them in my body. And I personally do believe in non-physical beings. So, you know, I would be nervous in my house if it was dark, like walking up the stairs, I could feel things around me and just very, very sensitive. And my best friend growing up, we would play this fun, you know, what we called the psychic game. And when she would, she would be driving and she'd say, okay, tell me in your mind, which way I should turn. So every time we'd get to the intersection, I would, you know, mentally say, turn right. And then she would turn right. And we had like a 95% accuracy rate <laughs> with that fun telepathic driving game. So, you know, growing up, I experienced that in that way. And with my broad definition of channeling, I had also uh, what we call clear cognizance or like these downloads of information. And that came up for me in my private practice when I was seeing patients. You know, of course, the patient would fill out a history form and I'd be talking to them, but then I'd get this huge download of information that, you know, they didn't share about at all that related to the root cause of where their illness may have came from. And I would, you know, ask kind of a probing question and it would almost always lead to some sort of cathartic release about, oh yes, this happened to me or, oh yes, that's when it started. So that was pretty amazing. I also uh, get goosebumps when I perceive something is truth. And I can share a little bit more about the noetic signature research that we've done, but it's not uncommon for people to have different expressions of channeling and that it shows up differently for everybody. So when I, I had, you know, those things that I just described, but when I came to IONS, I started doing research on trance channeling specifically. And that's what I experienced quite a bit with my family members, but I, I hadn't experienced it myself. And I became very curious about what that would feel like to actually try to do trans channeling. 
And a colleague of mine, Patricio Trisoldi, put out a paper using hypnosis to teach people how to do that. I said, oh, I want to do that. And I did. I worked with a hypnotist. Uh, we did about six sessions and it allowed me to learn how to trance channel. So now if I choose to, I can do that also. Have you had any remarkable experiences yourself while trance channeling? Specifically while trance channeling, I think the process in and of itself is incredibly profound and remarkable. I'm a meditator, so you know, I get into a very relaxed meditative state and you know, as I'm sitting here talking to you now, I know what I'm going to say. I'm thinking about what I'm going to say. I'm, you know, envisioning how I want to say the words coming out of my mouth. But in a trance channeling state, I literally have no clue what is going to come out of my mouth. And it's kind of like I'm observing the situation and I'm just listening like I would listen to some other speaker. And that in and of itself is so bizarre <laughs> to be able to witness myself talking without knowing what I'm about to say. And I wrote about some of my experiences in my Science of Channeling book related to how channeling works. And I feel that channeling, whether it's trans channeling or other types of channeling, is such a powerful tool to be able to gain information about things that we're not sure about. So the wisdom and clarity that I've received for my own personal life has been profound. The guidance about research focus and work focus has been really profound. So to me, it's an indispensable and remarkable tool that I'm just absolutely grateful for. Now, when you're channeling, who do you feel you're communicating with? A deceased loved one, a higher being? So I can answer that question with my scientist hat on, which is one of the most common questions. What is the source? What is the source of channeling? And some people believe it's the higher self of ourselves. Some people believe it's the unconscious mind of our own self. Some people believe it's like a collective consciousness that we're tapping into. Others believe it's a discrete, separate, non-physical entity, whether it's a deceased human or a extraterrestrial intelligence or a guardian angel or spiritual helper. There's so many different beliefs about what the actual source is, and in this moment, we don't know. I mean, the short answer is what is the source is I don't know what the source is. We can't really prove in quotes. Um, my sense and hypothesis is that the source is actually quite varied depending on who it is on the specific channeling session and uh, the type of channeling that people are doing. And so in my instance, when I get goosebumps, I feel like I'm just tapping into my higher self or a higher truth than my ego personality has access to. And those goosebumps are saying, hey, pay attention. There's something here that you should attend to. 
similarly, when I'm getting those downloads of information, I'm tapping into some larger information field. When I or others are doing trance channeling, I personally believe, because I am more of a spiritualist and I do believe in survival, that there is a discrete entity that is communicating through. And I don't think that, you know, like I imagine Helene leaving this body and then living in it through eternity, exactly how I am in this human form. I think that this human form is very particular to us being here now and that it probably morphs and shifts and changes. But that's my essence. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling, but I do want to share one more piece, which is that some trans channelers will just, they believe that they're just channeling one specific being all the time, you know, like it's their one guide that's always talking through them. Other trans channelers will channel whatever is called for in that moment, depending on the sitter. So if I do trans channeling, that's the type of channeling that I do. I don't do readings for people. I just use it for my own use. And so most often it's my spiritual guides who come through or a family member who wants to give me a message, etc. Hey, everyone. I'm really excited to let you know about the science and spirituality salons I'm now hosting. During these intimate events, a scientifically verified psychic medium will give all of you readings, and I will give a talk on the science and evidence that changed my mind about an afterlife. This will also be an amazing opportunity to get to meet some of you in person or virtually and to share more about all the science and data that transformed my worldview and got me through my worst days. These can be hosted in your home, in a nearby cafe with a private room, or they can even be virtual. I've hosted a few already, and they were really special, fascinating, emotional, evidential. So if you're interested in getting a small group together over dinner, brunch, drinks, coffee, to learn more about the science and to get evidential medium readings, send me an email at hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put science and spirituality in the title. You ever wonder what mediums do with their free time? How about a 30-something-year-old gay medium living in New York City? Well, in this podcast, you're about to find out. Welcome to Ghost Daddy, a place where LGBTQ plus spiritual people and our cis-hetero allies, of course, have a place to just be themselves and spread their wisdom. This is the new face of spirituality. None of that love and light, toxic positivity crap. So pour yourself a vodka soda, <laughs> open up your mind, and start listening. You can listen to the Ghost Daddy podcast anywhere where you listen to podcasts. You mentioned you are pretty convinced or convinced that there is an afterlife. And 
can I ask why you've concluded that? We have, I think, quite a few listeners who have a hard time thinking afterlife is possible and they're in pretty profound grief. So I'd love to hear why you think that. Yeah, and this is my personal path. The things that I witnessed growing up were so remarkable to me and there was no motivation for my family to be faking it. And so I think from an early age, witnessing that, witnessing my mother, you know, probably I've witnessed hundreds and hundreds of trans channeling sessions of my relatives that I just can't see how or why they would fake it, including speaking different languages that they didn't know, you know, expressing knowledge that they, like my uncle's like a barely a high school grad and, you know, he would talk with a vocabulary that he couldn't do otherwise. So my personal experience, I think, was is the major foundation of that. Then as a scientist, in reviewing the evidence, you know, with my scientist hat on, I can't say definitively that we have definitively proven beyond the shadow of a doubt that survival is real. And the only reason why I say that is because of the psi hypothesis, right? So that is this information that we're receiving, is it actually just from living people? And to me, it's highly unlikely that that's true because you look at some of these cases and there are no known psychic ways to actually get the information for some of these cases. Like it's so complex and so convoluted and we haven't been able to see anybody demonstrate that level of psychic ability otherwise. And the simplest explanation is survival. And I know it's hard for people to swallow and I'm absolutely not trying to convince anybody I would invite them to actually review the evidence. You know, we won an honorable mention of the Bigelow Institute of Consciousness Studies contest. Maybe you've already talked about that with your audience, but it was a huge contest where people were charged with summarizing the best evidence for survival. And so Today, that is the most comprehensive, summarized evidence that you can find anywhere, and it's all available for free on their website. And I think we did a pretty good job with our essay. We got honorable mention, of course. There were lots of others that uh, were awarded higher than ours, but I think it's a really nice summary to be able to review that evidence. So with my personal experience, plus this evidence that I've observed, I am personally pro-survival hypothesis. And I'm just going to add to everyone listening, most people who really investigate this deeply come away with the same conclusion. If that's what helped me early on, so hopefully that will help all of you. Do you want to talk a little bit about the essay that Ions won an honorable mention for? Sure. So we, we took a an approach that was unique in that when you think about science and you think about evidence, 
the way to synthesize and evaluate that is to do a review and to judge the evidence. You know, it's called a systematic review or a meta-analysis. And so we started thinking about how can we actually grade, if you will, the level of evidence. So we reviewed the various levels of evidence and gave each one a grade. So for example, the mediumship literature is vast. It's been around for over 150 years There are so many incredible cases that are exceptionally difficult to explain. Fast forward, we have the modern triple blind laboratory studies that are also very difficult to explain. So the mediumship literature is really quite solid. So it got one of the best grades. We also have the reincarnation literature that was initiated by Ian Stevenson and has been carried on by Jim Tucker uh, at the University of Virginia. And so that is a very, very solid, comprehensive body of evidence demonstrating, I think, demonstrating some persistence of survival in subsequent lives, which is just incredible. Some of the birth defect evidence is really amazing. So, and just to clarify, let's envision someone was, you know, shot in the chest and that's how they died. The child would be born with this huge birthmark on their chest and be saying, yes, I was shot and this is who I was, et cetera. Those are very, very, very well documented. Another body of literature, which is very compelling is a terminal lucidity which are patients who are on their deathbed with very extreme disease like Alzheimer's where the the brain is atrophied such that they literally cannot speak, they can't walk, they can't do anything. Their function is so incredibly low. And then just before they pass, they'll pop up and be completely coherent and have wonderful conversations with their loved ones and then leave. Now, that's not specific to survival, but it does, I think, demonstrate that we can have a level of consciousness without our physical brain. So in those cases, the brains just mush and they haven't been able to communicate for months and then all of a sudden they're speaking normally, etc. So I could go on from there, but we did grade these different bodies of evidence and then we had a second piece that was really fascinating because we wanted to know, just like your audience, well, what would be the most persuasive? What experiment would actually persuade you to believe in survival? So we laid out 10 different experiments and we asked academics, we said, if this experiment had a positive result, would this allow you to believe in survival? What would persuade you? So we had all these ratings and it was really fascinating to see that the bodies of evidence that we graded the highest were the ones that people said would be the most persuasive. And so that was the mediumship, the reincarnation, etc. Now, I don't think that each body of literature by itself is 
really what does it. I feel like when you look at all of them together, it just creates such a compelling picture. And the contest organizers, they said, we want to know the evidence, uh, if it's been shown beyond a reasonable doubt. And so many of the essay writers said, yes, it's been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And the organizers feel that it has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So from their perspective, they're like, we don't need to do proof-oriented studies anymore. It's already been proven and now beyond a reasonable doubt. And so now we're moving on to discover a little bit more about, well, what's it like in the afterlife and how do we prepare for ourselves and can we you know, communicate with them to help support humanity? What are your theories or studies or thoughts on any conclusions of what it could be like in the afterlife? So we personally at IONS haven't done any specific studies on that, but there are some wonderful resources for that. Frank Fontana wrote a wonderful book called Life Beyond Death that's very accessible, very easy to read. Numerous channelers have written descriptions about life after death. Um, and actually we have done, we have received some content in a, a, a more recent study that is about to be published in the Journal of Anomalous Experiences. It's an open access journal. We asked channelers questions from scientists, but those scientists were also curious about the afterlife. And if I was going to summarize the information in a very brief way, I would say that yes, our consciousness does survive our physical death, that we are able to communicate, connect with loved ones who have passed, that there is a kind of transition period shortly after we pass, that there the overall goal continues to be learning and expansion. And then that takes different forms depending on the person's goals and intentions. So that's it very in a very, very quick nutshell. Another area I'm very interested in is earthbound spirits, this phenomenon of deceased humans who get stuck after they pass. Often it's because they're atheists or they are deeply religious and feel that they're going to go to hell or they died suddenly and didn't realize that they have passed. This phenomenon is talked about in so many different cultures around the world and talked about how to prepare for death and how to support these deceased humans who are stuck to actually move on because it is said that their energy continues to affect the living. You grew up around this, you know, you're probably not as shocked as say I was when I first started learning about some of this, but is there anything you've discovered in your research or experiences that just completely surpassed your Vogel threshold that just absolutely blew you away? I think one of my favorite moments in my channeling research was a project that I did with five different trans channelers. And we went to, we rented a house 
And we had like three days of channeling all together. And in the corner of the room, we had something called random number generators that all come back around to. But, you know, we had channeling sessions and then we had times where we weren't channeling, but we were just chatting. But one of the most profound channeling sessions was when all of those trans channelers were channeling at the same time. And the, the supposed beings talking through them were having a conversation with each other about humanity <laughs> and what do we do with humanity and, you know, they need help and how are we going to help them? And it was really, really quite profound. And then at the same study, you know, there was an experience where one of the supposed beings was communicating through one channeler and was having this conversation and said, okay, now I'm going to jump across the room to them. And then all of a sudden that other channeler picked up right where they left off and kept talking. And then, you know, that happened like three or four times around the room. That was also quite incredible. So that paper has also been published. So any of the audience members who want to learn more about that, you can find that on our website as well. You said there were also random number generators there. Oh, yes. What happened with them? So we have these uh, 16 random number generators in the corner of the room. And basically, these devices spit out random data. And there's really no reason for it to stray from randomness. Imagine it spits out ones and zeros, and there should be an equal number of ones and an equal number of zeros. I'm simplifying it quite a bit, but just so that the audience understands. So we compared the data when channeling was happening versus when we were just chit-chatting. So sitting in the same spaces in the same room, and there was increased coherence between the 16 data channels, meaning that they were less random. And it was across those 16 channels and also within those 16 channels. So if you think about one channel, if you if this data point is correlated to one in the future, it's basically greater coherence across time. And if you look at the different channels and how they relate to each other, because they're on this little board, it's kind of like coherence across space. So this was a small pilot study, but essentially we found greater coherence across time and space during the channeling sessions versus the non-channeling sessions. So to me, this was so incredibly exciting because I can walk into a room when people are channeling and I feel the difference. So if I walk into a room when people are channeling, that feels very different to me than if I walk in a room where people are just chit-chatting. So to have this device actually pick up some difference in the environment was really exciting to me. So we have since uh, used that device for other studies, including like energy healing and biofield detection. And we think it's a pretty promising technology to be able to get at these subtle aspects of reality. Obviously, this is speculative. I don't expect you to have an accurate answer. But what theories do you have or strong theories do you think there are scientifically that how this could all work? What substance could this non-local consciousness be, if that's even the right question to ask? What, what scientific theories 
do you like that are out there? The ones that keep rising to the top of my mind are informational. And I really like Jude Curvin's work. She wrote a couple of books now, but one was about uh, holograms, which are essentially informational. And so the idea that this interconnectedness of all things is made up of information and that information shows up in different ways is really attractive to me. Another interesting piece is, you know, if you talk to channelers, you talk to people who can sense subtle energies, they're often use the words of frequency, vibration, density, you know, and so perhaps that information is transmitted in some wavelength way that creates its unique aspects. Because people say, well, how how can we all be one and yet still individual? But if you look at, you know, the electromagnetic spectrum, say, as a metaphor, it's all one thing. It's all this one spectrum. And yet each frequency on that spectrum is super unique. So the color red is one specific frequency, but it has its characteristics that are very, very different than orange, say, or purple, etc. And that could be our individual selves. So those are the ones that are really rising to the surface and, you know, including the higher dimensional models by Bernard Carr and Vernon Nepi. The funny thing about theories is there are so many of them <laughs> and everybody has their favorite, you know, theory. We're actually hosting a contest. We did last year where people had to come up with testable theories of consciousness and we awarded $100,000 in prize money for the top winners of that. So you can also see that on our website. And next year, we're going to have a new prize again for 100K, but our committee is meeting now talking about this exact thing. What are the theories of consciousness? Which are the best ones? How do we move this field forward? There are so many theories. And one idea we have is can we create a review where we actually map them all on top of each other? Because what someone calls a conscious agent may be the same thing as a noetic particle, maybe the same thing as a gimel, but it's all kind of different names for the same thing of, of how it works. Anyway, I'm not a physicist and I, I can only speak to this to a certain level, but those are the pieces that come to mind around it. So you said you offered a $100,000 prize just recently. What were the two prize winning essays? Yes, we when we first put the call out, we received 108 initial applications. We narrowed those down to 10, and then we narrowed them again to three. And we were supposed to pick one, but we got to those three and we're like, we can't pick. We need to give each of these a prize. So we gave, they split the 100K between those three applications. One of them was by... Gomez Marin is his last name, Alex Gomez Marin, and it was called Seeing Without Eyes. And it was all about uh, these children who are blindfolded very in a very strict way who are able to actually read. 
And so the experiment was to recruit clinically blind adults. So they basically, you know, don't have the physical capacity to read and then also blinding them and then doing this reading training, if you will, to be able to read without eyes. So that definitely shows this non-local consciousness piece, unless we can read through our skin or something that we haven't quite developed yet. So that was one application. The other one was using these random number generators that I just already described to you in deathbed settings. And at the moment of death, is there a shift in entropy in the room that can be detected by these random number generators? So that was also a very fascinating study. And I apologize, I'm not remembering that that group's authors in this moment. The name of the study and the scientists behind it is Detecting Deviations from Random Activity as Indications of Consciousness Beyond the Brain by Dr. Wolfhard Janu, Dr. Basilios Basios, Dr. Pier Francesco Moretti, Dr. Peter Mary, Dr. Annette Grathoff, and Professor Vicente Arias. And then the third one was Donald Hoffman and team for his highly mathematically technical uh, conscious agents theory that the fundamental nature of reality is consciousness. And they were demonstrating that mathematically. Wow. I wish I could spend like 10,000 hours. You hear my dog in the background, but I wish I could spend 10,000 hours delving into those. Everything. This whole conversation has been absolutely fascinating. And I guess one final question. You mentioned that you believe everybody can channel to an extent. I'm sure not all of us are superstars at it, but what tips do you have for all of us to develop that ability? We call that the noetic signature, that everybody has the capacity to channel, but that the way it looks for them is unique. It's like a signature. If you go to our website, you can take an inventory that shows you your specific way of how you channel. And it's fascinating because not all of us can play basketball really well or play soccer really well or play tennis really well. I see it on a kind of natural spectrum like any other type of skill. And so the noetic signature can allow you to discover which ones are really strong for you and how to potentially nurture them. So there are many, many teachers of channeling, depending on which type you'd like to learn. I actually have a channeling course starting up in October on best practices. But if I was going to give the quick and dirty tips it would be to set aside even just a few minutes a day to sit quietly or to do some very mindful movement if you're not someone who can sit still with the intention of going within and listening to your own inner wisdom and starting simply with yes, no questions 
and then being very open and curious and observant about what you experience. Put the blinders on to the outside world and that fire hydrant of information that's always coming to us, even if it's just a few minutes a day, and give it a try. Hey, everyone. I'm really excited to let you know about the science and spirituality salons I'm now hosting. During these intimate events, a scientifically verified psychic medium will give all of you readings, and I will give a talk on the science and evidence that changed my mind about an afterlife. This will also be an amazing opportunity to get to meet some of you in person or virtually and to share more about all the science and data that transformed my worldview and got me through my worst days. These can be hosted in your home, in a nearby cafe with a private room, or they can even be virtual. I've hosted a few already, and they were really special. Fascinating, emotional, evidential. So if you're interested in getting a small group together over dinner, brunch, drinks, coffee, to learn more about the science and to get evidential medium readings, send me an email at hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put science and spirituality in the title. Club Care is a charity organization founded by Emma Justice after the loss of her father, David Justice, to glioblastoma. Club Care is dedicated to supporting children and families dealing with cancer. They strive to create joyful moments through meaningful projects impacting individual families, as well as larger oncology communities. Funding for all projects is raised through philanthropic donations. Go to makingheadway.org backslash programs for a complete list of programs and activities. And now we're gonna pause for a second for the question of the week. Tanya asks, I heard we all have abilities, meaning psychic medium abilities. What do you think about that? As Lloyd Arbach said, all of us can sing, but not all of us are Beyonce. So, that's what I think. I think there's a few ways to answer this. Almost all of us seem able to get some form of signs or communications. Some moments where we might have a visitation dreams from our loved ones. We might just know something. So it seems to be just a human ability. Now, does that mean we should all go be psychic mediums? Absolutely not. I think almost all of us think of a friend we haven't spoken to in forever, and then suddenly we run into them, or they text us. Also, maybe a difference between most of us and psychic mediums is you're hanging out with a friend, and I mean, we all have piles of thoughts a minute. Maybe you think of like a certain pie that you want to eat, and you don't say it. I mean, it's just one of the fleeting thoughts, like, oh, yeah, next week I'll go grab a piece of this pie from the store. And that was her grandmother's favorite pie. And her grandmother was sending that to you. Whereas a medium might suddenly 
get that message, get a picture of her grandmother and know it was coming from her grandmother and then be able to say, oh, did your grandmother love this certain kind of blueberry pie? And I'll also just share two theories. Dr. Dean Radin thinks that almost all of us have abilities. Then there are a few people who have exceptional abilities. Those are the ones that should be professional psychic mediums. And then there's another tiny percent that have absolutely no abilities. And so then there's another theory. I discussed it in my episode with John Cruth of the Rhine that we're all just constantly getting psychic information all the time. It's why we go down one street over another or why we're like, oh, let me go to the store now and not later. And then you run into someone, you know, or maybe you avoided something you didn't want to have happen. And we're just not even consciously aware that that's where tons of our information is coming from. Whereas psychic mediums can then tap into the next level of that, as well as have an awareness that a percent of our information is coming to us that way. If you have a question you want me to answer, send it to hello at wtfjusthappened.net and put question of the week in the subject. I know I usually say first names, but if you want to be completely anonymous, let me know. And feel free to reach out anyway, even if you don't have a question. I can't wait to hear your questions and hear from you. And lastly, remind us the name of your book and where our listeners can find you and follow you and learn more. So you can find my book, The Science of Channeling, uh, wherever books are sold. It's available as an audio book now. And much of what I've been speaking about today is available at our website at noetic.org. We invite you to join our community. We have lots of free programming that you can get involved with to learn more and to have conversations, transparent conversations about these exciting topics. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. To get more information on what the fuck just happened, go to wtfjusthappened.net. There, you can order my book, What the Fuck Just Happened? A Sciencey Skeptic Explores Grief, Healing, and Evidence of an Afterlife. And you can learn all about how I came to conclude that there most likely is an afterlife. You can also learn about the early stages of my grief and the amazing, fascinating people I met along the way. You can also read about how much I harassed them trying to get evidence, see if they were cheating, and see if they were sane. There, you can subscribe to our newsletter. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a difference, especially for a new podcast like this one. And if any of you have had a crazy what the fuck yourself, have any questions, feedback, or just want to say hi, reach out on either Instagram at WTF underscore just underscore happened underscore or email me at hello at WTF just happened dot net. 
And remember, you don't have to draw any final conclusions as you wonder what the fuck just happened. <laughs>